Hey, it's Pastor Sam. I want to thank you for tuning into this week's sermon, which is from our current sermon series called Our Aim, as we look at the mission of Sacred City Church, which is to make disciples, plant churches, and renew the city. You can find more information about Sacred City Church in Moline, Illinois at scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Nehemiah chapter 1, 11b to chapter 2, 8. Now I was cupbearer to the king. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight that you send me to Judah to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Last week... We resumed uh, our series called Rebuilding the Ruins. We've, we started out the year in the book of Ezra, uh, and, and we took a little break through the summer, jumped back in last week to the story of Nehemiah. And, and really what I, I need you to understand that Ezra and Nehemiah are really one big story put together. In fact, you can even graft Esther into this. And it's one big story of God's redemption of how he's working to rebuild the ruins. Now, if you're just joining us, the series title gives you uh, a hint at the general narrative, the, like the general overarching story of what's going on in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. It starts with the city of Jerusalem, God's holy city. And you could say it like this. Uh, you could say that Jerusalem is to the Middle East is what Bettendorf is to the Quad Cities. It's the premier city, so they say. I don't believe it. But Jerusalem is the premier city. And this premier city is in total ruins, the walls of the city have been toppled down. The, the, the homes have been destroyed. The temple, the thing that makes Jerusalem such a significant city is laying in ruins. It's been defiled. And God's people have been hauled away because of this place is inhabitable. In, inhabitable. In, inhabitable. Words are hard. And what this is, when we see Jerusalem lying in ruins, this physical reality, this is an external manifestation of Israel's spiritual deconstruction. See, long before they were swept away, 
God's people had turned away from worshiping Yahweh, the one true and living God. They turned away from worshiping Yahweh to worshiping idols. And when this happens, it leaves people spiritually bankrupt. Hearts that are built on sinking sand. And as a product of this, this is what led them to be taken away into Babylonian exile, hundreds of miles from their home, carried away into a pagan land, ruled by a, a king that had this conquest to expand and exercise his own dominion through that region. And through this process, we see physically what's happening spiritually. There's a separation between God and his people that they have wandered away from him and it's as if they're miles and miles apart. Now, while it seems this way, God has not forsaken his people. God is a covenant-keeping God. And so while they are in exile, while they're hauled off in this foreign land, God makes a promise to restore them through the prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 29, he says to the exiles, then you will call upon me. You're returning to me. You're coming back to the true worship of the one true God. You'll come to me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. God promises to his people that I will rebuild the ruins. He's going to restore the city of Jerusalem, and he's going to bring his people back to this place. Now, why was God doing this? Why does God make this promise? Well, it's because that's what God does. God is a redeemer. This is a, uh, um, a theme that gets repeated over and over and over. From, from the beginning of Genesis chapter 3, after fall, uh, the sin enters the world where we get to see the fall, God is working for the redemption of his people. Psalm 130 testifies this. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love. And with him is plentiful redemption. Not meager redemption, not just small itty bitty redemption, but plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all their iniquities. God promises to rebuild the ruins, to, to make Jerusalem great again. But before God begins any of this brick and mortar work that is to take place, God starts with a different kind of building. God is building rebuilders. God is building men and women to step into a space and to reform what is broken. People who will assist God on his mission of making all things new. People who are at God's disposal, aligned to his purposes for the sake of his glory. This is what God is doing in the story of Nehemiah. And while the story of Nehemiah and Ezra occurred roughly 2,500 years ago, it is still very much a relevant story because God still has a mission. And guess what? It is much bigger than just one city. 
Jesus is rebuilding the whole cosmos so that it will be on earth as it is in heaven. And I am convinced, and you should be too, that the Quad Cities is part of that. That in God's graciousness, he's including us in this grand story of redemption. And to that end, he's building rebuilders. Men and women right here in this room to assist him in this work. Now, Nehemiah 2 shows us some characteristics, some, some really important traits that these rebuilders ought to embody and deploy for the sake of kingdom advancement. There's eight of them, and I know what you're thinking. I don't, I don't think I've ever done an eight-point sermon, so we've got we've to scoot today. But there are eight characteristics here that I wanna draw out from this text. And I wanna assure you first here, as God is, is building rebuilders, none of these traits have to do with swinging a hammer. These are traits that God wants to put in every man and woman. And so let us turn to Nehemiah 2 and, and together envision the kind of people that God is, is building here at Sacred City. Let's go uh, verse 1 of Nehemiah chapter 2. This is on page, if you want to pull out your Bible. or you got, Actually, there are some of those journals left right there in the entryway if you want to grab those Nehemiah journals. Or I believe it's page 343 in your pew Bible. Open up with me. Words will be up here on the screen here. Nehemiah 2, verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when the wine was before him... I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence, and the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing that you are not sick? This is not but sadness of the heart. And then I was very much, then I was very much afraid. Now, right out the chute here, Nehemiah points to the reality that he's, he's sad. <laughs> he's he, we saw this back in chapter one um, when Nehemiah hears from his kinsmen that the walls of Jerusalem are still lying in ruins. After decades of rebuilding, Zerubbabel, Ezra has been sent back to, to work to restore the city of Jerusalem. There still is not the kind of progress that Nehemiah hopes to see. And this causes, we saw this last week, a deep lament, a deep sadness that swept over him. He had a steady diet of crying, eating his tears, of praying and fasting. And, and what we see here, this time domain that we're told of here between chapter one to chapter two, there's a time, a span of four months that has elapsed. Nehemiah's heartache has carried on for four months. Now this reveals to us the first trait that Nehemiah is a man devoted to the Lord and his cause. Nehemiah is a man devoted to the Lord and his cause. This isn't something, as he hears the, the destruction, the ruins of Jerusalem, that he can just shake off and, and go on with his day. He has a deep heartache for what's going on. Now, sadness has a way of showing what you care for and love the most, right? The greater the love, the greater the heartache. And we know this, right? The, the tears that you spell, the, the quantity of tears indicate the strength of the love. Now, there, well, 
Okay. I saw this was I, I saw this on social media this week. Is I was like I saw it. I was like this is gonna be a sermon illustration and the Lord here. There was a it was on like Sports Center. There was a guy. Bears fan, and I'm not picking on the Bears fans here. He's decked out. He's got a, a standing in front of his TV in his living room. He's got a, a beanie, Bears beanie on, a, a Bears Leatherman jacket. Um, I don't know why he's wearing this. It's, it's, you know, still hot. And he's standing there at the end of the game from, from last week, watching time expire as the Packers beat the Bears, and he's got tears streaming down his face. And, and his girlfriend, in, in the meantime, is, is videotaping him because she just thinks it's ridiculous. Like, what grown man cries over a football game? And so she's giving him a hard time. She's like, are you getting hot wearing all this stuff? He's like, taking it off. And takes it off. He's wearing, like, sweatbands. Like, he thinks he's going to go into the game or something. She's kind of ribbing him. And, and she keeps going, and he's... Tears, he's like, I'm not crying, I'm not crying. And she's like, why are you crying? Like, it's just a football team. He's like, you, she's, she says, you've never cried over me like this. And he goes, well, I've, this has been my team for 22 years. I've only you've known you for two months. <laughs> it's like the strength, the strength of love, right, indicates the degree of sadness. Now, that silly thing, it's super silly. But that just indicates this reality that, that what you love, what your affections are bound up in has a way of invoking a sadness in you, a heartache that you just can't shake. And clearly, Nehemiah's heart is wrapped up in God's promised redemption for his people and for the city of Jerusalem. But it's not just to see Jerusalem become a premier city once again. Nehemiah runs to God his heart is fixed upon God. He, he goes to God in prayer, just like the psalmist of Psalm 47. He's seeking God for his refuge and his strength. And in this, he shows he's devoted to the only one who can do something about his sadness. Now, if we want to see our city renewed, we must be a people who seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness to see that it will be added to us. Now, the problem is that we often get pacified in seeking, like bringing the bar down just to seek a comfy life, Some, a kind of a life that's a bit cushy, that's just comfortable for me that I sort of just ease into. We, we lose sight of the big vision, the big picture, the glorious thing that the Lord is doing. And it says, C.S. Lewis says that, that we, get, we are, are just too busy making mud pies, that we can't envision a holiday at the sea. And a lot of us, we, we tend to live our lives like that. We, we Forget, we don't see, we, we lack the vision of what God is doing, this glorious thing, this glorious work that God is doing in the world. Now, Nehemiah saw it. Nehemiah knew that God promised to make it a reality. Do we? When, when the Lord Jesus teaches us to pray on earth as it is in heaven, is that fueling our Christian imagination? Is that giving us a dream of what it would look like if God's kingdom were to actually take root here in the Quad Cities? Nehemiah saw it. Can you see it? 
Now, up to this point, Nehemiah has been able to conceal his sadness from the king. But after four months of lament, his internal state has become an external reality. It's obvious that sadness has been on his doorstep. He's, probably, he's been fasting. He's been praying. It's likely he's lost weight. His, his face has shrunken in. He's been crying. He, he, I, I don't know. Do you know the feeling? You've cried heavily and you just feel like your face is tired. Your eyes are sunk in. Your eyes are poofy. Nobody else? Okay. Well, he, he knows that. His physical features have changed because of this internal reality. He's got some sad boy vibes going on here. You can imagine that Psalm 88 is his jam, right? It's like the, the precursor to emo music, I think. And as Nehemiah has this physical demeanor, he sticks out like a sore thumb as he's standing at the king's party. He, he's there serving wine to the king. While the rest of the people are there having a good time, they're getting a little schnazzled with all the, the wine that's, that's going on here. The king notices that Nehemiah is in a depressed state. And he asks him, why is your face so sad, you buzzkill? It's like, we're having a good time. The wine's flowing. We got the music. What's your deal? Now, before we get to that, we have to ask this question. How did a Jewish exile get into the king's chambers in the first place? Remember, they're, they're hundreds of miles away from home. God's people have been carried off. We're in the, the citadel of Susa. How did a guy like Nehemiah get to a place that he would have direct access to the king of Persia? Well, back in verse 11 of chapter 1, we're told that he was a cupbearer to the king. That's why he's taking the wine. That's why he's giving it to the king in verse 1 of chapter 2. This doesn't mean that Nehemiah is just simply a bartender. Nehemiah has risen to a prominent position that, that he's not just a, a wine bearer, a cup bearer. He is one of the king's advisors. He, he has this position in the kingdom of Persia that he aspired to, that he moved toward, that he deployed his skills to get to that spot. And this shows us the second trait of, of rebuilders. It's they are competent that a rebuilder is not complacent, but competent and driven. See, Nehemiah uses his skills, he uses his, his wisdom and ability to attain influ an influential role in Persia. He rose through the ranks. Now, God often uses people who rise up through the secular ranks, whether that's city government, regional, state government, God uses people who rise up through the ranks as they steward their skill and ability to the glory of God. And oftentimes, it's people who give themselves to this kind of work, who aspire to something that God uses to shed light on his cause. This is why we as Christians should be behind other Christians who, who want to get involved in the, the political sector. Like, it's not wrong for us as Christians to be invested in these things. Now, we can't make politics our God. We can't replace the gospel and the kingdom of God for the kingdom of this world and, and sort of the, the political sphere. 
But God uses men and women to get into these spaces to bring influence. And to get there, they have to show competency. They have to have this sort of drive to achieve something. Now, God does this with Nehemiah. Nehemiah, because of his drive, because of his competency, his wisdom, he's able to get into the king's quarters and shed light on what's going on back in his hometown. And God does the same thing today with Christians. Now, depending on your station in life, God has given all of us some kind of influence. Now, the question is, are we utilizing that influence for our own good or for God's glory? But here's the thing. To, to utilize our influence for God's glory does not mean that, you, that your good is excluded, that they're not a, a mutually exclusive thing. Your good, your ultimate truest good is wrapped up in God's glory. And so Nehemiah, we see him using his access to the king to shed light on the cause. But as he does this, as he answers the king, he says, why are you sad? We see Nehemiah experience this wave of fear. At the very end of there, verse two, he says, I, I was very much afraid. Now, why is Nehemiah afraid? It's because he knows that the stakes of this scenario are high. Not only is Nehemiah being a buzzkill and sort of disrupting the king's vibes, what, what Nehemiah is sad about, the reason why Nehemiah is sad is because the walls of Jerusalem lie desolate, but the reason why they lie desolate is because King Artaxerxes, back in Ezra chapter four, the king that he's standing before, ordered a cease and desist on the building of these walls. See, this is where, where it's important to see that Ezra and Nehemiah are two stories linked together. The reason why Nehemiah is sad is because the king stopped the progress. Now, what, he, what he's about to say here could be taken as offensive. The king could hear his request or hear why his explanation as to why he's so sad and think that Nehemiah is so far out of line that the king could deal harshly with him and be offed. And that's the end of Nehemiah. Nehemiah knows that the stakes are high and his emotional state indicate this reality. This is the third trait of rebuilders. We see that Nehemiah is emotionally differentiated. Nehemiah, between his sadness and his fear, is reckoning with some very strong emotions. He, he's, not, he's not this weird, like, false version of masculinity, like macho man, cut off, feels nothing, just sort of stoic. He's not that at all. Nehemiah feels deeply, and these feelings, this emotion, is taken into account. Now, being emotionally differentiated is not the same as being overly emotional. Somebody who's overly emotional, who feels these strong emotions but doesn't know how to place them, doesn't know how to halter them or, or put them on, on a leash, often gets controlled by their emotions. We see this all the time where people get manhandled by their emotions. They, they just sort of lose touch with reality and they lose any sense of agency 
Now, Nehemiah feels a very real sense of sadness and fear, but he's not, he's not paralyzed by it. He's not held captive by that. He sticks to what it is that God has placed on his heart, and he speaks up in verse three. He says, I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? So Nehemiah, being emotionally differentiated, feels deeply, stands up, and says something. Now, what he says indicates this fourth trait. I've been, I put it up on slides to help you follow me here, but the fourth trait. As Nehemiah speaks to the king, he displays tactful integrity. Now, this, this might sound kind of weird, but let me, let me explain this. See, when Nehemiah goes to the king... He could have held the finger in his face and say, this is your fault. He could have been accusatory. This is your fault. Your legislation is killing me and my people. My hope is being dried up because of you. But that's not at all the posture that Nehemiah takes. He goes into the king and he speaks humbly. You see this. He says, let the the king live forever. He's he's bowing beneath his superior authority, acknowledging him, honoring him. But at the same time, he's asking for something big. He's asking that the king would allow him to restore the land of his fathers, or just acknowledging the fact that he's so sad because the land of his fathers, his homeland, lies in ruins. And what he does here is he makes a personal appeal, appeal um, by saying it's the land of my fathers, it's, it's the land of my home. He actually doesn't actually, he doesn't mention Jerusalem by name. Now, this, this might be a strategic omission as he goes before the king. He mentions Judah, which is the region where you can find Jerusalem. But, but he's strategic in the sense that he omits the city of Jerusalem and fear that that will kind of jog his memory and, and say, nope, You can't do that. But instead, Nehemiah makes a personal appeal, an appeal to his heritage, to his forefathers, and this is not necessarily dishonest. He's not bending the truth, but he's being selective about the things that he shares in a tactful way of integrity. And I believe that this is an example of what Jesus commands his disciples to be or calls them to in in Matthew chapter 10, to be as wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Is Nehemiah sinning? No. But he is being wise. He's being careful in the kinds of words that he selects to present to the king. Now, this is a trait that that comes in handy. We, we, as Christians, like, we have a mission. We We are on a mission from God. And we have to be thoughtful and tactful in the way that we go about that mission. And we see with Nehemiah, it works. In verse four, he says, and then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So not only is is Nehemiah making this this reality of his sadness made known, he's, he's indicating that he wants something from the king. What are you requesting? And so he prayed to the God of heaven. Now, Nehemiah is about to make a big ask. And before he goes and he makes this big ask, the first thing he does is 
prayer. He goes back to the Lord in prayer, and you can imagine what he prays for. This is the fifth trait for courage. See, it'd be so easy for Nehemiah to just sort of cower down, to, to chicken out and not make the request because uh, after all, the stakes are high. But Nehemiah goes to God in prayer and just like the disciples in Acts chapter four where they pray to God, he gives them boldness. C.S. Lewis says that courage is not simply one of the virtues, but the form of every virtue at its testing point. Nehemiah is at his testing point. And God supplies a supernatural boldness that allows Nehemiah to make a big request. Now, what Christians need most in this day and age is supernatural courage. The thing that this church needs most right now is supernatural courage. Because Christians who who desire to live faithfully in a world that is hostile towards God will feel a tremendous amount of pressure to cave to criticism, to cower in fear. And we've seen this throughout the last several decades as the church sees this liberalization, this veering away from the authority and integrity of the word of God. There's this departure and we start compromising on this thing to this thing to this thing. And before you know it, the church has moved further and further and further away and she's caved to the demands of society rather than obeying the Lord Jesus Christ. It takes courage to stand against the cultural current. That's why do not be afraid is the most repeated command of scripture. Over and over and over again, God says to his people, do not be afraid. In fact, Revelation 21 says that the coward is excluded from the kingdom of heaven. Now, I mean, there's a list of people, the the murderers, the drunkards, the sexual immoral, like all all those bad, but the coward is lumped up in that. Those are the ones excluded from the kingdom of heaven. Courage is not an optional piece of the Christian life. It's necessary. And thankfully, God is gracious to supply every bit of courage we need to live faithfully in this pagan world. Just like Nehemiah, standing back in Persia, giving him courage to go before the king to make his appeal known. We have the same courage. God gives us that same kind of courage today. And we see Nehemiah go in verse five and six and make this request known. He says, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen's sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. Nehemiah requests to be sent back home to go rebuild the ruins himself. He's he's spearheading this charge. And what this shows us is the sixth trait of rebuilders. Rebuilders are those who take responsibility. Rebuilders are those people who take ownership. 
Nehemiah doesn't wait for someone better suited to stand up, somebody who knows how to swing a hammer. He doesn't sit back and, and, and be the critic as he watches other people try to fill in, which I think in this day and age is, is a strong temptation a lot of Christians feel, right? You see other faithful Christians trying to do good work for the sake of the kingdom, and rather than jump in with it, we're throwing stones at the man in the arena. Nehemiah doesn't do that. Nehemiah sees the need. He sees Jerusalem in ruins and in the same spirit of Isaiah says, here I am, Lord, send me. Nehemiah is at the Lord's disposal. He's, he's ready to go in to the work. Makes me wonder what would happen if we had that same attitude? If we as a church collect, collectively said, here I am, Lord, send me. I'll take, I'll take some responsibility. I'll go into this. I'll step into this hard thing that you're desiring to accomplish. Now, this isn't a brash decision for Nehemiah. It's not, it's not impulsive. He's clearly been planning this for a while. As he sits there for the last four months, crying, eating his tears, lamenting, fasting, it's obvious that he planning something. He's got a plan. You can see this because he goes back to the king. In the boldness that he had initially, he goes back to make another request in verse 7. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the providence beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the, of the fortress, of the temple, and of the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked for. Nehemiah is thinking strategically. This is the seventh characteristic. Nehemiah has a plan. He's not flippant, but he's thoughtful and strategic. And in this, he goes to the king and he asks for costly, not, not just like a meager request. We're, talk, we're talking about a costly request for political and economic provisions that would allow him to go back to Jerusalem safely, to have the lumber he needs to rebuild the wall, to take care of the temple, and to build for himself a home. He's thinking about all of the pieces. What, what do I need to go and do this? If Nehemiah had not thought through these things, his mission would have likely been quickly thwarted. So it's necessary for us to think strategically too, to put, put ourselves in, in strategic places, asking God for strategic movement. Now, when we look at all of these characteristics that we've covered so far, you gotta wonder, was Nehemiah born like this? Did, did he naturally have all of these traits? He just came out of the womb and he was this guy. Just, he was the one. He was him. Was he naturally inclined toward greatness? Now, this question, I think it exposes a, a bit of uncertainty or insecurity in our own hearts, too, because we have the sense that I'm not naturally like this. I, Sam Schmidt, am not naturally like this. Do I have any hope? Can God use me? I mean, I, I'm not, there are times where I'm fearful, 
the fear of man trumps my fear of God. There are times where my allegiance to God is divided. And I know you well enough, even though I don't know all of you, to know that that's true of you too. That we're not this guy. That we're not him. We're not her. So can God use me? Can God, can God turn this thing around? See, Nehemiah wasn't like this naturally. God built Nehemiah like this. God, it was in the midst of exile. While Nehemiah was in difficult and hard times, in strenuous situations, that God was developing and refining Nehemiah for such a time as this. Commentator George Fensham says this, the odds were against Nehemiah. Things weren't stacked up in his favor. The odds were against him, but in spite of this, by willpower, a strong personality, and a deep-rooted devotion to the Lord, he was built to play an important role in the history of God's people and the history of the revelation of God. God built for himself a man like this. And it's not just Nehemiah. We saw this with Zerubbabel, led the first waves of exiles back to Jerusalem. We saw this with Ezra, who comes in the second wave. And it's not just men that God does this to, it's with women. He instills these characteristics in women, and we see this in, in the story of Esther. I believe here, listen, this, this is a sidebar that, that I'd love to talk about and geek out about this, but, but when it, it, it mentions the queen sitting beside the, beside the king, uh, in parentheses there, I believe that queen is Queen Esther who had to stand up under a lot of pressure and fight for her own people. She was appointed by God strategically for such a time as this to save and deliver God's people from total annihilation. And because of Queen Esther's boldness, her courageousness, she cleared a way for Nehemiah to become a cupbearer, to become a man who could go and make a request before the king to carry out God's mission in this world. And God is still doing this. This is not something he just does in Bible times. Not just in the Old Testament. He does it with the Apostle Paul, with Peter, with James. He does it with Martin Luther, with John Calvin, with John Edwards, with, with Machem, with Schaefer. God is still building men and women like this today. Men and women right here in the pews. People, by God's providence, who can change the world in big and small ways for God's glory. And the only way that God builds this kind of person, this is not a, a self-help, self-achievement project. It's not something to pull up my bootstraps and let me just go at it. Let me prove to God that I'm really worth something. The only way God can make a person like this is through the gospel. He tells us in Ephesians 20, for we are his workmanship. See, God handcrafted, hand-tailored every single Christian created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works. Now, how does he do this? He does this through a man unlike any other man. The God-man, Jesus Christ. He, he put on flesh, God who had an eternal status, Jesus, with the Father since eternity past, sitting at his right hand, enjoying all of his creation, enjoying the glory of the Father, Jesus stepped down from that place and put on flesh. 
He lived a life fully devoted to God and lived to carry out God's sure and definite plan of redemption. He took on responsibility for us. Meaning he put on our sin, he took his, our sin upon himself and was nailed to the cross. And Jesus in that moment, when he feels the pressure, the weight of God's wrath bearing down upon him, the sadness, the fear, the lament, he doesn't cave to emotion. He feels it, but he doesn't cave. He courageously despises the shame of the cross. And Jesus did this in order to redeem a people for himself, to build men and women who would carry out God's plan in this world. And by God's grace, he, he changes us into a new creation and the process of sanctification of, of, is becoming more like Jesus. Right? This, this constant uh, uh, rebuilding, this renovation of the soul that God does in our hearts, that, that for once in all, he's moved us from, from death to life, but he's bringing us deeper and deeper into the full life that Christ has given us. And when we experience this, when we experience the work of this man, Jesus Christ, we demonstrate the eighth trait, the final trait that we see of Nehemiah, and that's gratitude. We, we give thanks to God for what he has done. You see this at the very end of verse eight. See, the king grants him what he asked for, and he acknowledges this, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Just as Nehemiah attributes all his success and blessing to God in verse eight, we as Christians can stand and say, salvation belongs to the Lord. It is a gift of grace. It's a gift of grace so that no man can boast that God lavishly pours out his love and his grace and his mercy upon us and he changes us down at the core. And the deeper that we plunge into the grace of the gospel, the more that we are changed from one degree of glory to the next. See, this is what discipleship is. Discipleship, if Jesus is this archetype, that, that Nehemiah, though we can say, yeah, he's, he's a hero of the faith, he's a guy worth aspiring to, he, he's, just, he's just mimicking Jesus, right? Jesus is the archetypal man. And Jesus continues to refine us and change us so that we become more like him. That is what sanctification is. And as Jesus refines us and rebuilds us and renews us, God works through us. Paul says this in Philippians 2, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to, fill, to fulfill his good purpose. See, it's Christians who say, Lord, here I am. I'm at your disposal. I'm ready to be used by you for your purpose. And any sort of success, we can say, yet not I, but Christ in me, the spirit of God working. Now this all circles back around to the first point, the first characteristic. Devotion to the Lord and to his cause. If Jesus has done so much for you to redeem you, to save your life from the pit, to, to elevate you from darkness into light, will you live as one fully devoted? Will you forsake all idols and worship the one true God to live fully devoted to him? 
to work toward the renewing of the city or, or the advancing of the kingdom of heaven so that God would rebuild and reform and renew in us and in our city. This is the good work that I believe that God is calling Christians to. He's doing it across the world, but he's also doing it right here. And I want to invite you this morning to go all in on this, to give yourself to this glorious work, to let the Lord do a work on you so you could be deployed for God's mission, for your good and for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your loving kindness. That while sin and death and darkness had total grip on us, that, that while we were given over to our idolatries and our futile worship, you worked to redeem us through the person and work of Jesus. And you are still doing that. You are bringing people to yourself. And this morning, Lord, I pray that if there's somebody who is far from you feeling brokenness, that they would be able to come to Jesus and find the restoration that he offers the wholeness, the newness of life that he freely gives by his grace. And as you give us your grace, help us to be a worshipful, grateful kind of people, fully devoted to your cause. Lord, we pray that you would continue to build up your church, build up men and women like this. People who are courageous, fully devoted, strategic, and are grateful. And as you build us into this kind of people, Lord, I pray that you would help us to surrender ourselves to you through that process. It's not always neat and tidy. Sanctification, a lot of times, is painful, and it hurts a little bit, but you are working for our good. And so for those people this morning that are maybe in a tough and, tough and trying season, would you give them the kind of grace that, that pulls them out of it? Would you give them the kind of grace that, that renews them in the midst of the fire, in the midst of the flood, as we sang about this morning? Would your grace sustain us and renew us so that you would build rebuilders for the sake of your glory? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.